Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, everybody. Uh, you know, I've got a couple of business items here I want to cover with everybody before we get started on this really provocative subject of drones. But um, remember, Brandon Perrin is providing a two-day seminar sponsored by the California Association of Licensed Investigators this Saturday and Sunday, August 15th and 16th, near San Jose, California at Campbell. It is still not too late to register. They're still accepting registrations. So if you want information, go to cali-pi, www.cali-pi.org under events, and you can register for that. You do not have to be a member to go to this. It's a really good training. If you know about Brandon Perrin's training, you know that it's good. This is criminal defense, uh, uncovering unreasonable doubt, uh, the component method. And then on August 26th, there's a webinar also sponsored by Cali. You can go to the same location, cali-pi.org, with Lester Rosen. Lester Rosen is a preeminent expert on background checks in California. Uh, that's the title of the uh, seminar, and dangers and landmines facing private investigators in California. So, again, you do not have to be a member to attend this seminar. There's a small fee, but it's really minimal for the webinar. So... We're talking about drones, and I'm just, um, whether you call them uh, UAS, unmanned aerial systems, or UAV, unmanned aerial vehicles, if you're considering adding a drone to your toolbox, well, you're in the right place, because I have Jim Nanos here to talk about regulations, insurance, training, uh, cost factors, and uh, the kinds of things he's been exposed to as he's been using drones. So good morning, Jim. Good morning, Frankie. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, Jim is a licensed private investigator in New Jersey, and I um, saw an article that he wrote in PI Magazine, one of our sponsors, and uh, certainly called him and, and invited him to be on the show, and he grave, uh, graciously accepted. So, Jim, tell us about you, though. I know you're, you have your own company, so tell us all about how you got to where you are today. Well, like most PIs, I, I began with a career in law enforcement. I'm retired law enforcement from a small PD here in New Jersey, retired after 25 years. Uh, the natural progression after the uh, law enforcement world was a combination of private investigations and working private security. Um, I, went on, I came on board of a, a large national security company and uh, was director of corporate training for them for about four years, and at the same time started my uh, little PI company, which has grown into something much larger than I initially envisioned. Uh, we have about six investigators on board now, and we primarily mm. focus on surveillance, difficult surveillances, um, and, and the general uh, private investigation field. But mostly surveillance work is what, what our forte is. And what do you mean by difficult surveillance? Well, we get a, a lot of surveillance companies in New Jersey that will call us up uh, looking for electronic surveillance, difficult uh, jobs where they can't necessarily get that photograph or uh, they need uh, specialized equipment, whether it be a high-tech van. We've got a couple of vans we use for platforms uh, or uh, motion-sensitive cameras. I mean, there's a whole number of different things that the local guys, maybe that, that run-of-the-mill generic PI company out there that maybe just don't have 
the uh, resources, financial resources, to buy the equipment and, and maintain the equipment. And like you know, most of this stuff, you, you know, like computers, you buy them today that are outdated in uh, six months or a year. So right. being able to keep up with the equipment is is costly unless you're using it every day. So the companies that uh, do those complicated surveillances or they run into that problem, most of the times, you know, a lot of them will call us and, and, and sub it out to us or, or seek our advice or guidance in uh, handling those jobs. Interesting. So, and now, I, you know, I was looking at your bio, Jim. You have so many awards we can't even we don't even have time to talk about them on this show but um but i noticed that you're the past president of the paternal order of police is that when you were uh with the new jersey department yes that when i was a police officer in new jersey uh you know full time i was the uh past president of our, our police union uh and a bunch of other stuff but uh yes the, the fop represented us and i was past president of the fop here in our uh, county lodge Okay, and also you're a member of ASIS, uh, American Society for Industrial Security, and you were telling me that you're going to be speaking there um, in New York. When is that going to be in case people want to uh, join up with you there? Yes, the actual North Jersey chapter of As Is will be uh, presenting their conference in November. Uh, I don't have the specific date offhand, but they've invited me to do a block and a demonstration um, with uh, UASs, or we're going to call them drones for today to keep it simple, uh, do mm-hmm. a drone demonstration demonstration and uh, go over drone use and how it could apply to, to PIs. And also, as is, you know, mostly mem- most of the membership is industrial security and security professionals. So going to give a little bit of a block of what they can look out for and, and some ways they could possibly even you know, defeat the use of drones against their facilities. Interesting. And how long have you been in the private investigation business? Uh, we stood up my business right prior to my retirement, which uh, I retired in 2010. So we've been in business since around 2009. And I'll tell you, the, the business has just grown, uh, grown dramatically uh, with the help of the, uh, the New Jersey State Association. We have the uh, New Jersey Licensed Private Investigators Association here in New Jersey. I can't say enough for, for that association. What a great group of guys and girls. And my business has really just literally taken off, no pun intended, um, since I joined the association. <laughs> And, and started networking. This business is all about networking and, and knowing people. And uh, that Absolutely. association has been just a tremendous help. It is a good association. I know they're very active. It's great. And the, and the name of your company is Apple Investigations and Process Serving. Yep, Apple yes. Investigations, appleinvestigations.com. Okay. okay, appleinvestigations.com. So if people want to contact you, uh, have more questions about UAFs or UAVs or um, want to hire you, they can go to that website. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, this is exciting. <laughs> so uh, tell us how, well, when did you get your first UAV? Well, it was probably Christmas time. <laughs> like most Just people get into year? the field, they get one for Christmas or a birthday. And, you know, I'm a bit of a tech guy with the surveillance side of the business. You have to be a tech guy. Um, or you have to know a 12-year-old. In my case, I'm a tech guy. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, got the, I got the UAV or the drone, and, and it, it just seemed like it was a great fit. Uh, the platform's uh, great to use in the surveillance field. Uh, and, and I just started exploring the possibilities of, of, of implementing it into a surveillance, not making it the primary tool, which, you know, we can talk about that during the, uh, during the conversation, but uh, it, it, it shouldn't be viewed as a primary tool for surveillance. It should be viewed as a, a, a way to supplement the good old-fashioned legwork that we all do, uh, the, not the primary tool in the surveillance. So I, I purchased one, and, and I've upgraded a number of times. I, I, I probably have four of them now, way too much money invested in them. 
Um, so I, I enjoy getting paid occasionally to play with a, an adult toy. <laughs> we love them. I believe I lost you, Jim. No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Yeah, you dropped off for a minute. Okay. So um, what would somebody anticipate to pay for, for, a, for a drone that works and is good? Not, it's not just a toy. Well, uh, entry-level um, entry level platform, uh, you can literally get um, a platform. That probably 90% 90, 90 of the market is cornered by a company called DJI. They produce the Phantom series. Um, out of the box, uh, you can get a, an excellent unit straight out of the box for somewhere in the area of $1,500. I, I will tell you, though, it's like buying a car. You can buy that cheap car off the lot or... When you start adding options and gizmos and gadgets, the price really goes up. Um, I would say something uh, for a professional grade product with some bells and whistles and some add-ons, you should figure on spending somewhere around $3,000. It doesn't mean you have to spend $3,000. Right. Like I said, you can get a really nice unit right out of the box uh, for $1,500, and, and that's, that's almost professional level. You can buy units that you can um, take some aerial photography. You wouldn't be getting first-person viewer data linked back to a device, but I mean, you can, as, as cheap as $79, I've seen them that are, they're little platforms, they're very small units, limited capabilities, very short distances, uh, not a lot of altitude, uh, but you, you could actually buy something for 69 or $79 that you can go out in the backyard and have some fun with. Right. Those are the ones you get for Christmas presents. They're so, the ones you start with. That's right. That's what yeah. starts this whole thing. That's what started you. Okay. So when you talk it, about... Yeah. When you talk about bells and whistles, what what comes with it that isn't the basic unit? Well, uh, most of the units out there, and, and and I'll tell you, I have a um, the last one I purchased is a DJI Phantom Three professional version. Uh, most of the units come through with the ability to uh, utilize what they call the first person viewer. That is to for me to view live time what the camera sees on the platform. So basically, it's what the camera is looking at on the drone is being relayed to me, and I'm looking at it through most people who use like an iPhone or an Android phone. Um, mm -hmm. If you're starting to use it for professional use or you get older like I am, um, your eyes start <laughs> to go and you might need something a little bit larger. So what I've done is I've incorporated like a 10-inch um, uh, iPad uh, into, into the unit so that I'm actually looking at almost this computer-sized monitor it makes it much easier to see smaller details, much easier to use the controls and the features than to try to look at um, your first-person view or all the telemetry on a small device such as an iPhone or, or an Android device. So I, I, I always recommend if you're going to spend the kind of money, get yourself a tablet, a dedicated tablet, the biggest one that you can afford to buy, and you use that to actually use, uh, utilize a first-person viewer. And you're saying a dedicated tablet, so you don't want to use that tablet for anything else but your drone usage. Well, you could. There's nothing that says you couldn't. But what I like to do is uh, your, your, your drone and your tablet or your phone is going to be connected through Wi-Fi. So typically, if you've got a tablet that you're downloading programs and you're downloading apps and you're using it for all kinds of other applications, like anything else, it could get clogged up. You could have mm -hmm. other conflicts and devices uh, or programs on there. And the last thing you want to do is being in the middle of an operation and have you know, three or four or five thousand dollars, a couple hundred feet up in the air, and all of a sudden your your system shuts down because there's a conflict with a, another program or an app on there. So what I recommend right. is, if you're going to spend that kind of money, get a dedicated tablet and just use that. It goes in your bag, it goes in your box, 
it's strictly to be used with, with the UAS or the drone. Makes it life a lot easier. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good tip. That's a really good tip, I think. So, um, what, um, so you would recommend, even starting out, if you're going to do it seriously, to get a professional model? Absolutely. My, my, fir- my first recommendation is sometimes it's better off to know a guy than to be the guy. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the reason I say that is, is like any other technology that, that we use, you have to use it constantly to be proficient with it. Um, you can't just take your, your drone out once every two months and expect to go out there and get good quality shots and be able to, to negotiate with the environment and the wildlife and everything else that's out there. Um, I fly a minimal a minimal five hours a week to be proficient. Um, and that's just extra time. That's not if I'm using it on a job or, or demoing it. I'm just talking going out on a Friday or Saturday afternoon, running through all the batteries, draining the batteries down and getting stick time and, and working through those things that you don't expect. And that's what I like to do. I, I'll take mine out to a place that I haven't flown before and I'll, I'll fly for an hour or 45 minutes to, and just you know, see what happens in that area. Am I getting interference? Are there a lot of birds flying in the area? Uh, um, that sort of thing, because that's what's going to happen during in a real-world operation is you're not going to plan for some sort of an issue that comes up. You have that's to be right. prepared to handle it. And simply flying every two months or, or once every couple of weeks, you're not going to be proficient with it. It's like, granted, it's like riding a bicycle. You can always ride a bicycle, and it's, it's not terribly difficult to master the use of one of these devices. But what people fail to recognize is, there's always going to be things that happen, things that you can't control, environment, wildlife, and you've got to be able to think on the fly and be able to make those corrections and, and handle those. And you're not going to be proficient if you only fly once every every month or every yeah. other week. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and that's good information as well. So what kinds of things, what kind of cases are you using? Well, what um, would you be using in, on? In the PI for a line, uh, most of our calls for service are going to be um, – Accident investigation, um, and surprisingly what we'll get is you'll get a, a, a fatal motor vehicle accident or a serious motor vehicle accident where um, the family retains an attorney and the attorney anticipates litigation. And what they'll ask uh, somebody with like a drone will do, will go up and get me some photography and some video of the accident scene uh, as soon or as close to the event as possible. In the old days, when I say old days, I mean a couple of years ago. Yeah, right. um, most it's true. Of, you know, that's the old days. Most attorneys would rely on, hey, let me grab a picture from Google Earth or, or, or one of the other, you know, MapQuest or one of the other services that are out there. The problem is you have no idea how old that photograph is, even if the date, usually they're date stamped in the lower right-hand corner, but there's no guarantee that that's the actual date. You can't uh, certify, you can't uh, authenticate the validity of the photograph. Um, and, and quite honestly, the traffic patterns and the accident scene, the, the, the neighborhood could easily have changed since the accident, and it could also change after the accident. So as For far sure. as accidents are concerned, I'll get an attorney to say, I need some photographs, some video of this accident scene. We anticipate litigation. So what you're going to get is a good representation of the incident scene, maybe a week or a month after the accident, not rely on photographs that were taken uh, two or three years before or a year after the event when mm-hmm. the whole neighborhood has changed and there's been construction and there's been new traffic lights put in and new signals. So that, that was, that's one of the uses. We get quite, quite a lot of calls for that. Some of the other areas, we'll get calls from public adjusters um, when there's a fire or um, a natural 
disaster or catastrophe where there's been significant damage to a property. They'll want some really good aerial photographs. Um, quite often when there's a fire um, and the house is gutted, you know, the roof is burning out, you can take photographs 360 around the house, but you really don't get a sense of how bad that fire is until somebody's, you know, 100 feet above looking down an aerial from an aerial platform and you can see how the devastation from above. And it really makes a difference visually when you're trying to you know, negotiate with an insurance company and, and try to say, you know, the house really sustained uh, a much greater loss than what you're viewing from just the pictures from the curbside. So we get a lot of calls from public adjusters. Um, occasionally, you know, we'll get some inquiries about uh, people that are working missing person cases. There's occasionally mm-hmm. some areas where maybe they just, you know, marshland or or something along those lines where they'll ask somebody with a, uh, an aerial platform maybe to make a pass over and see if, if they can spot anything. Not, not, not a great deal of that, but I see that happening more and more. People are, are inquiring about that. Fire departments specifically, a lot of volunteer and paid fire departments across the country are looking to implement drones into their, into their equipment bag, their tool bag. And then usually you will get the calls for surveillance from either other PIs or attorneys asking, hey, we've got a property, um, the main house sits a quarter mile off the road, we, there's no chance to get uh, photography from the, from the street side and in, in the public area, can't see it through the trees, uh, a lot of bushes, a lot of vegetation. You know, is there any way we can get an aerial shot? Uh, of of the property and maybe some of the cars there or or some assets there, a boat tractor, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And and that's mm-hmm. mostly where most of our calls come from. I would think, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, equipment theft these days, uh, airplane theft, uh, boat theft, and even, you know, the large uh, front loaders and stuff like that. So that would be great for something, somebody like that that's trying to hide their equipment. Sure, and, and and even in divorce cases and matrimonial cases where people have equipment or or assets that they're not claiming or they're denying having, um, you know, uh, we might be able to throw our unit up in the air there and get some photographs of that boat in the backyard or or that expensive tractor or piece of equipment that you're not going to see from the road and may not come off that property for months or years, and right. it's, it's difficult to prove that asset exists. Well, I, c- I can certainly see uh, a great benefit when you're talking about with a, uh, for a tra- traffic accident <clears throat> and being able to be above the freeway and be able to uh, really tune in and key into components that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Or, or even if you were there on the ground, you, you wouldn't be able to see it. It's much, sure. much and, better. And a great able- use for that is, um, you know, occasionally we'll get calls and, it'll you know, a left-hand turn kind of accident where people are, cutting the red light or they're making illegal U-turns. And it's one thing to sit on the side of the road and do the old-fashioned traffic count and say, hey, you know, in an hour, 17 cars made the illegal U-turn. But if I can throw uh, my, my unit up in the air there and get HD video to actually show how the cars are making those illegal left turns or illegal U-turns, it's a great visual tool for an attorney to use when it comes time for court to present to, an, to a jury. Uh, or to use in litigation. It's one thing to sit there and say, hey, in, in 30 minutes or 60 minutes, this many cars made the turn. But it's another thing if you can plug the video in in HD, you can actually see those cars making that illegal turn or cutting the red light or, or whatever the you know issue that comes up with a motor vehicle accident, a particular accident. It's, we live in a visual world. And, you know, used to say, you know, a, a picture's worth a, mil- a thousand words. Well, video's worth a million dollars in today's world when we're talking about litigation with attorneys. So HD video, we're a visual world. That's where it's at today. Interesting. So, so is it always video, or can you take stills with it? No, you can do a combination of both. Um, what I what I tend to do is 
Um, I take still photography, HD photography, and you can either take single pictures or what they call burst photos. So um, the unit that I have now, I can take single photos, three, five, or seven bursts. So what I, I don't know what that do means, off- Jim. What's what a burst photo? Every time, every time I click the, the shutter, it'll take one picture or it'll take three pictures, five, or seven photos. So oh. it's sort of like taking your, your, your Nikon camera and holding the button down and getting that, that click, 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 click. You're getting five photos or seven photos, and you're hoping that one of those photos is the, the best photo. Right. So it, it, it's the same thing with, with the, the aerial platform. Is every time I click the button, instead of taking a single photo, I'll take a burst of either three, five, or seven photos. And then when I get back to the office there and I pull up those photos, it gives me a better opportunity to find the best photo. You know, we don't oh, often get great. the perfect photo. But instead of picking or choosing one photo, I might have seven photos to choose from, and, and one of those photos might be better than the other. So I exactly. typically take burst photographs, and, and then we supplement it with, with video. Uh, okay. What's nice with the video, too, is with today's technology is I can take some HD video, and you can always screen capture a really good uh, photo out of that video. So I like to use a combination of both, oh, um, and, and that, that way the client has the option either a still photography or some HD video. Okay. Well, we have so much more to talk about. Uh, We need to take a break, though, Jim, real quick. Uh, We'll be back in a couple minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator Jim Nanos is discussing unmanned aerial systems, drones. And Jim, I know that the FAA rules have come down recently and there's been a lot of legislation across the country regarding this. What have you run into and how has that restricted you 
or what kind of thoughts do you have about it? Well, the FAA's, um, uh, their proposed rule implementation that hopefully will take effect within the next uh, you know, year or so after a public comment period uh, are actually uh, beneficial to us uh, in, in one respect. It's going to regulate and, and make us more professional because we're going to meet, have to meet some, some guidelines, some criteria. The shortfall, that is, they're only regulating commercial drone use, uh, which in my view, in my opinion, that's a little bit of a problem because generally speaking, very general terms, is when you hear these horror stories on the news about a drone came close to an airplane or somebody was doing something inappropriate one with one, if you were to research that, you'll generally find that it's going to be someone with using it for recreational purposes, not a professional or someone using it for commercial use. So mm-hmm. where we're at right now is, um, you know, the 15-year-old kid that gets one for Christmas is, is right. for all intents and purposes, totally unregulated. He or she can do, and a lot of them do, anything they want with them, and they do some crazy things with them. In, in my particular case, I've got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars invested in equipment. I'm never going to take the risk of flying one uh, near a prohibited area or try to tail an aircraft as it mm-hmm. lands at LaGuardia or, or some of the things that you, you hear in the news. I think, right. But when, when they don't regulate uh, the recreational use, that, that's where most of the violations are happening. And the problem is that people paying the price for these violations are the commercial drone users. I, I like to draw the, the comparison saying if, if you had a, uh, a 15-year-old that somehow was able to steal a set of keys and get into a commercial tractor trailer and do something <laughs> crazy with it, mm-hmm. and then the government were to turn around and say, well, because of that 15-year-old kid who's unlicensed, um, was doing something inappropriate in a commercial vehicle, now we're going to make it much harder to obtain a commercial driver's license for everyone else who does it, does it legally. So it, it's a bit of a problem um, that, that the commercial use is being somewhat restricted or it's making it a little bit harder when the real problem is the recreational user right. um, or, or the unregulated user. And usually we're talking about you know, young folks or somebody who, who doesn't have the stick time. They get it you know, on their birthday and the next day they're out flying someplace they shouldn't be or, or doing something that they shouldn't be doing, something inappropriate. And it, all you ever hear in the news is a drone did this or a drone did that. It's, you never really hear the story behind who the operator was. And that's, that's really where the problem is. It's the individual operator. And we're all being penalized and in some respect being maybe overregulated somewhat because of what some people that really um, need to be regulated, uh, they should be looked at a little closer, not necessarily the commercial user. I've got a business. I've got insurance. This is my livelihood. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to do anything crazy with, with my unit. But Correct. the same $1,500 that I could buy uh, out-of-the-box unit, somebody else could get their kid one, and next thing you know, they're doing something uh, crazy. Yeah. So hmm. what, what regulations are, do you have to operate under today? Is there any regulations well, now? When we're talking with the FAA, um, we'll start with the FAA regulations. Um, it's it's very confusing because there are literally dozens of government websites out there that have conflicting information. Um, so you really, if you're trying to get information, you really, really have to look hard at the publication or the website that you're looking at. Uh, to keep it simple and, and not to overcomplicate it, um, we'll, mostly we'll look at what the proposed regulations are. And this is when the dust all settles in six months or a year, the proposed regulations for commercial use now. Again, there's no regulation for your son or daughter to go out in the backyard and fly theirs. Mm-hmm. But for the commercial use, um, they're basically looking at uh, drones that are less than 55 pounds, which 
that that's a huge piece of machinery. I mean, the DJIs that I fly, they're running you know somewhere in the neighborhood of five pounds. So okay. a fifty-five pound UAS is a big piece of equipment, not unheard of, especially when you start looking at maybe a commercial movie production where you're talking instead of a quadcopter that's with four propellers, maybe a hexacopter that has eight propellers and a much different camera system on it. It's not beyond the possibility of someone manufacturing a 55 or 100-pound drone. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it could happen. But for, for all intents and purposes, um, the, the commercial user on, on our level would be the guy using the, the DJI Phantom-type unit, which is going to be somewhere in the area of 5 to 8 pounds, depending on the unit they get. So they're going to restrict it to less than 55 pounds. I don't see that as any problem. Um, then it gets a little hairy. The FAA is going to tell us that, we, um, that you can only fly during daylight hours. And the reason they're saying daylight hours is in order to operate a drone, you have to keep it in what's called visual line of sight, which means oh, right. exactly what it says. I have to be able to see what that drone's doing. And, and looking at the telemetry on the first-person viewer, that's the tablet or your iPhone, that doesn't count. So I have to be able to look at this thing, which is, uh, you know how large they are. They're only five pounds, and most of the time they're white in color. So, you know, that thing gets five, 600 feet downrange from you. It's extremely difficult to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and the range, the operational range of them are much more than that. So they want you to keep them within a visual line of sight. For, say, somebody who's using it for real estate photography, that's not that big of a deal because they're probably standing right outside the house they're taking photographs of. They're going to be 50 feet away in the, in the street. They're going to put the unit up in the air maybe 50, 75 feet and take some aerial photographs of the house or they're going to use for a home inspection to look at the roof. Not a big deal. But if, if you're doing something in, in the PI line, you may want to go two or three or 400 feet away from your launching point. So that becomes a little bit of a problem. But, again, that's what the rules are. We have to, we have to abide by them. Um, they're going to require the drones to be registered and marked, which typically you see on the side of an airplane, the end number, the November number. They're mm-hmm. actually going to require us to put a number on, on the unit. Um, they don't have to quite be as large as you see on an airplane, uh, but mm-hmm. you're going to have to have some sort of marking on there to identify that that's your drone, uh, like a serial number kind of thing. Um, they're going to require us to be at least 17 years of age. You're going to have to go through an FAA-approved certificate program, different than what's in effect right now. But at the end of the day, there's going to be basically an uh, upgraded ground school that you're going to have to go to, and they're going to uh, go over some basic uh, FAA rules and uh, aviation-type rules and laws. Um, and then you're going to have to pass a TSA background check also, which is a really, really? good thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if, if you hopped on YouTube today, and if anybody, uh, our listeners, recall maybe two weeks ago, there was a video all over the news where somebody had actually taken a, a UAS and weaponized it by installing a handgun on it. So uh, there's some crazy things that could be done with these, so they're going to require a TSA background check. But again, this is only for commercial use. So right. there's no TSA background check for the kid who buys one, or the person that just says, I'm not following the rules. You know, a potential bad guy goes out and gets one. There, there's no right. TSA check for that. So, so some of the rules are kind of, you know, you, you look at them, but I, I understand, you know, the reason. They're going to limit the operational altitude to 500 feet. Um, originally okay. it was 400 feet, so when they increased it to 500, that was a bit of a surprise because everybody thought they were going to lower the ceiling right. maybe to 300, but they've actually increased it to 500 um, which, again, once you get above 500 feet, you really can't see the drone. You can't hear it. You can't see it. So if, if you got above 500 feet, you're really not keeping that unit within the, opera, the visual line of sight. So you're in violation of another rule. So 500 feet is, is a maximum ceiling. And I can't think of too many 
situations where you'd even want to even think about going above that. Um, and again, it's illegal, so you couldn't do it anyway. Um, and, and then the, the final um, component is um, currently right now, right now as we speak technically, if you file for your exemption for commercial use, uh, they're requiring some form of a pilot's license. Now, they recently changed that to what's called either a recreation or sports pilot's license, where originally it was a full pilot's license. It was just overkill um, to say I, I would have to learn how to fly a Cessna to be able to fly, you huh. know, to operate a five-pound drone to go take some pictures of a house for a realtor. So right. they, they've, they've really taken a step back. The common sense people got involved in it, I guess, and they realized that that's probably overkill. And what they're going to do is limit it to just the FAA-approved ground school, which is, which is probably appropriate. Um, there's no reason that I should have to be a, a pilot to operate one of these at, at our level. There's some other uses that quite possibly that, that would be applicable, but maybe not at our level. Um, and then there's some other odd and end things about um, you, you can't operate within a certain distance of an airport, and that even holds true for the recreational user. Typically, uh, you can't operate your unit within five nautical miles of an airport if it's a, um, a controlled airport or typically three, point, uh, three nautical miles if it's what they call uncontrolled airport without a tower. Um, and basically that's because within that distance you have the approach for aircraft, and they could easily be flying at 1,750, 500 feet in that same range that possibly your drone could be operating in. Um, so, so they want to limit the distance that you're operating within um, the airports, the airspace. So, Jim, what would happen uh, once these rules go into it, these regulations go into effect, and somebody is found in violation, which would probably come from somebody's complaint, I would say, uh, or some kind of an accident, uh, what, what are the consequences? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I, would, I would think that there, obviously there would probably be a fine involved. There's always a fine involved. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, typically they would probably, if you, were, if you had actually obtained the FAA um, certification from the ground school, they would probably suspend or revoke that and not allow um, commercial use by, by the operator any longer. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's what I would envision. That, that would have to be the, uh, the mechanism to um, fine you, would be a monetary fine and suspension of your, uh, of your certification. However, none of that is in effect for the recreational user, and that, that's where you really, yeah. you know, that's where this whole, whole problem comes in. An example would be if you were not a licensed PI and you, didn't, you were not using your, your drone for commercial purposes, you and I could go, both go, go and purchase the exact same drone, open up the box, we both fly it up to 150, 200 feet. You take a picture of a house. I take a picture of the house. We land. You could give the picture to the realtor for nothing. But if I charge them $5, that would be commercial use, and I'd be in violation. I'm regulated because I'm charging that guy $5 for a photograph. You're not because you're doing it for fun. So there's, it, wow. there's a, the genie's a little out of the, it's, it's out of the bottle on some of this mm -hmm. because you can't pull that back now, the recreational users. Um, so they're trying to regulate the commercial user, and it's like I said earlier, it's really the recreational user that should be looked at a little closer, not necessarily the commercial user. And do you see that changing? What do you, what do you see happening there? I don't know how you change that. I mean, I, I don't know how they would, you know, put that genie back in a bottle as far as saying now all recreational users that have purchased these units and have been flying them, now you have to follow these rules. I mean, there are rules that they're supposed to follow, similar to what remote control airplane users follow, RC mm -hmm. airplanes, but... Um, you know, the drone I use is, is five pounds. You can hop on YouTube today and you can look up a remote, you know, remote control RC airplanes and you can see RC airplanes that are bigger than cars. 
that are flying right. with jet engines, multiple engines, and, and they're, they're not regulated at all other than distance of flying to it within an airport. Um, so I don't know how they, how, when I say they, I mean the government, FAA, how they turn around and, and now try to regulate the recreational use of, of these. I, I think it, it's got to go back just a common-sense approach, like most of our rules, uh, what they're looking at doing, the FAA moving forward, seems like they're taking a much more common-sense approach at regulating the, the use of drones than, than uh, trying to restrict it. So I, I think we're going in the right direction. Um, it's just a little disheartening for the commercial user not to be, or the recreational user not to be held to the same standard as the commercial user. Yeah, Someone's well, like it, saying, you know, there's yeah. a commercial driver's license and then there's a regular right. driver's license. I get that, but if we're both driving the same vehicles, it, it should be, you know, the same, you would think. Well, you'd think. I mean, it seems like it's the difference between uh, riding a dirt bike and riding a motorcycle, a street legal motorcycle, you know? Sure. Yeah, good comparison. You, you know, you could, uh, maybe you could fly it. Uh, in an area where you could say ride dirt bikes, <laughs> but right. you could, couldn't fly it anyplace else. I don't know, but it seems like there should be some kind of licensing requirement. Uh, oh, even I agree for with the that absolutely. There should, but I, I think it should be across the board. Is if they're going to have a licensing requirement, it should be everybody who's right. flying a drone, not just the guy who wants to use it for commercial purposes. I, I get that that it needs to be regulated because the potential. For accidents and the potential for catastrophe and really bad things happening exist here because when you look at the limitations of these units right out of the box and what their abilities are, uh, 500 feet, and, and we're talking, when I say this, I'm talking a, a unit directly out of the box, no modifications. There's a ton of companies out there and there's a ton of 12-year-olds out there that can modify the, the, the telemetry and the, 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 the radios the transmitters on these units that will give you far greater range, that'll give you altitude that you would not believe, um, and that's just with slight modifications. And we're not talking tens of thousands of dollars. We're talking, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of parts, and you've doubled, quadrupled, or even more the distance and the altitude that one of these could potentially fly. Oh yeah, I can see a twelve-year-old boy just going for it with this. Though, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, if I, I were I a twelve-year-old boy, I've, I I've referenced. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've referenced YouTube a number of times, but if you if you were to hop on YouTube and, and, and do a search on you know UASs or drones and you look at some video from other countries where there's no regulations, there's lots of videos out there of, of drones taking photographs of jetliners below them. So that would that means the drone is higher than the jetliner. Oh my god. So um, you know the aircraft. It's it's scary potentially what, what could happen with one of these. And, that, and I think that's what obviously the government's worried about is the unrestricted use of right. these devices, and it's hard to play catch-up now when the technology, the technology is advancing so much quicker than the rules. Yeah. And, you know, we're getting to the point now where the rules are addressing probably what the technology was 10 years ago. Exactly. And, and that, that's our fear, is that technology is outpacing the rule makers. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Jim, we need to take another break. Uh, that was the voice of Jim Nanos. This is really fascinating. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program features New Jersey private investigator Jim Nanos, drones, pros, and pros, cons, and restrictive laws. And we were just talking about those restrictive laws and and what's happening with the recreational users and those kind of things. So, um, Jim, how, what would, what is your insurance requirement? Um, and is there a formula for that? Well, there's no real formula and, and there's actually, and that's another, you know, one of those areas, a gray area that just because of the, the, the quickness that the technology is advancing there, there currently is no requirement and the FAA doesn't address it. There's no requirement to have insurance. Now, if you're a recreational user, and, and I've called and I've queried both my commercial insurance agent and my home insurance agent, if you're a, a recreational user, then, then according to my agent, your homeowner's insurance will cover a, a, a pretty good amount of potentially any damage that you do with that unit. However, mm-hmm. as soon as you start to use it for commercial use, now your homeowner's no longer covers it. It's similar to a car. If you go into the grocery store, your insurance is going to cover you, but if you start running a business out of your car, a taxi service, you're going to need commercial service or insurance. There's a number of companies out there that actually are issuing commercial drone insurance. When I when I obtained mine, I think there were only and this and I, this is a while ago. This is only like six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there were only two companies that were actually writing policies for commercial use. There's probably easily two dozen now, and it, it's not it's not terribly expensive. And like anything else in our business, you, you would be crazy to operate a business or any component of your business without being properly insured and bonded. So, um, I, of course, I obtained insurance to cover my my drone use. It's not expensive. It's 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 a very very reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. So it, it would behoove an individual who is thinking about doing this to to go out and get the get a proper insurance policy and not just go out there and you know, start flying this thing around and potentially have a problem and, and find out that they're not covered. For sure. Well, it'd be like driving a car without insurance. I'm probably exactly. more 
more dangerous, probably. <laughs> and and your, general, your general liability insurance, and again, this is my understanding only, your general li- liability insurance as a PI would not cover this use. You would have to get a rider or a separate policy. And most companies aren't going to issue a rider for this. They would ask you or you would have to go out and, and get a separate policy. And, and they are obtainable. They're within the average user's use financially. If you, and again, when you add all this up, it adds up to a, a, a substantial investment to, to have and operate one of these legally and properly. So like I said at the beginning of the show, sometimes you're better off knowing that guy than being that guy. I, I think that's the best advice I've heard. And so if somebody wanted to get into this, is there a, is there training for it? I mean, is there some place you can actually go to get trained, or do you have to learn it all on your own? Well, like everything else in our society, as soon as an issue becomes a hot-button topic, there's always people out there trying to capitalize on it. And if you – I Googled this morning before the show, you know, UAS or UAV or drone training, and there's all sorts of training that comes up. Now – what quality it is, I don't know. Um, you know how applicable it is. I'm not too sure. You know, right. my my advice would be the first thing if you were thinking about this is find somebody who has one, either one of the local uh, remote control airplane clubs, or or somebody you a friend who has one, and, and just become familiarized familiar with it and see if it's something you're you're actually capable of doing. They're not they're not difficult to fly, but they're also not easy. And again, it takes practice and it, to be proficient with it. Um, but it's for the average person, it's not that difficult, but you have to be able to think on your feet. You're going to run into situations, and I've, I've alluded to a couple times wildlife. Most people don't think about that, but uh-huh. you're flying your, your drone, taking some photographs, and next thing you know, in my case at the Jersey Shore, there's 10 seagulls circling you because um, <laughs> they think you're another seagull, and, and they're, they're coming <laughs> after you. Or if you're out, out west, it's, it's not uncommon. There's plenty of videos on YouTube of hawks and, and eagles attacking drones and taking them down and now you've got five or six pounds falling from the sky at three or four hundred feet and that's where you potentially run into problems so you know you have to always be aware of what's around you and like everything else you got to be aware of your surroundings and when exactly. you see those birds flying you got you got to cease operations until you know those birds pass because a bird can take you down without a problem and now you've got that piece of equipment falling out of the sky i guess they would see as as a threat Absolutely. Well, they yeah. either a threat or a curiosity or, or whatever, yeah. or in a hawk situation, and I keep referencing that video because it's, it's a great video. It's on YouTube. The hawk probably thinks it's a smaller bird, and it's attacking it for, for, for food or whatever, and it, yeah. it finds out it's a drone. Um, but that thing's still fly, falling out of the sky now at a couple hundred feet at you know, five or eight pounds, and you, know, you have no control over where it's going to land when it starts falling. Interesting. So we haven't even talked about what is really the hot topic, which is privacy. So you were talking about um, taking photographs of a house for a real estate agent. So what kind of, you know, what about the neighbors? Wouldn't they be uh, questioning if their privacy was being violated? Well, that, that's, again, this is one of those gray areas where, you know, if I'm taking a photograph of your house, I'm, I'm basically doing nothing more than the local news chopper is doing. The only difference is they've got significantly more money tied up in their platform, and they may be a couple thousand feet higher than me. I mean, quite often, you know, law enforcement, I, I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, you end up on, on the local news station on video, and you never even heard the helicopter because it's so high in the air now with the quality of the camera equipment. So um, the, the fact that someone takes a photograph of your house, I mean, what, legally, if I can pull up in front of your house and take a picture from the curb, what's the difference whether I'm doing that at the curb line or I'm 150 feet up in the air. This is where the common sense factor 
that that PIs and and frankly Hopefully. recreational users need to think is you know you can't go peeking in people's windows with these things. I I I never. I shouldn't say never, but I, I, I try not to, unless it's like a workers' comp case or something, I try not to take pictures of individuals. I try to limit it to property, to automobiles, to that sort of thing. Never mm-hmm. pictures of people in the backyard in a swimming pool or that sort of stuff, because that's going to lead to problems. It's just, it's just not worth the, the, the problems that potentially could lead to, because then you're running into those privacy issues. Uh, so you really, it's a common sense factor. Now, do people look in windows with these things? Get on YouTube again, and these are the 10 and 12-year-old yeah. kids that are doing crazy things. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and really that's the issue, I think, if I understand it correctly, is the be- people's backyards. Is, right. you know, if you were, say, on surveillance on a particular property, you would not be allowed to take a photograph inside that backyard where here a drone would allow that. So I, I think that is one of the big privacy concerns that I've heard. Sure, and, and there, are, there are some common sense and some things you can do to, to limit your exposure. Like one of the things I'll do is if I'm, I'm taking a picture of, say, a, a, a backyard where there's a boat or something that I want to get a photograph, rather than fly right over that boat, I'll launch it over, over a public street, and what I'll do is I'll take a photo directly down first, some video directly down the show that I'm actually hovering over the street, and then I'll angle up and I'll take a photograph from an angle of my target. I don't necessarily fly over and take a picture directly down yeah. of that target. So if that ever were to be questioned, you would say the quote-unquote airspace I was in was over the public roadway or was over the vacant field or something. There's some things you can do possibly to limit that argument. I don't know if that argument would ever have merit because, again, uh, I'm doing the same thing to News Chopper or any airplane or anybody in a blimp or anybody you know, flying overhead in any sort of aircraft could do. But to, to maybe eliminate or limit that argument – there's some things you can do, and that would be maybe station your drone over the public roadway and take the picture on an angle rather than flying directly over that backyard. Well, you know, that's a really interesting argument that I actually haven't even heard before The uh, about the news uh, helicopters that are flying over, what, you know, over us all the time. Uh, what, what is the difference? Uh, in, in theory, there's absolutely no difference except they're higher and they're, quote, unquote, the news. And will they have um, you know, exemptions? If they, can, if they can take a picture of your house, you know, why can't I? The difference is they're at maybe 3,000 or 2,000 feet, and I'm limited to 500 feet. Are they exempt from the FAA rules? As far as photography? I, the FAA doesn't regulate any photography. They regulate the use of the aircraft, oh, not photography. Okay. Yeah, good point. Huh. Very interesting. And, yeah. Of course, law enforcement, when they have their helicopters flying over, they're always exempt because law, law enforcement has sure. an exemption for anything like that. But uh, it is interesting about uh, news helicopters. Hmm. And, and they're, yeah, that really, you just challenged me on that one. I'm going to have to give that some more <laughs> thought because, you know, as you everybody knows, uh, there's all kinds of drone legislation going on across the country. Um, I believe... Uh, Florida just lost, uh, Florida investigators just lost a bill in, in Florida uh, that NCISS tried to help them with. We've got bills pending in California. There's, so there's drone legislation everywhere. Every state's trying to control it, um, which is difficult because uh, how do you control across state lines? And so, you know, that's where the FAA rules kick in as well. So it's complicated. And, and, and frankly, very- not, only, not only across state lines and nationally, but there's a big movement on local municipalities and local government passing ordinances and regulations 
with the use of, of UASs and, and, and UAVs. And what becomes difficult is, you know, they vary from town to town, and um, it's sort of like every time you drive through a town, there'd be a, a different set of rules for you operating your vehicle. Um, again, common sense needs to enter into this, and there should be mm-hmm. one set of rules for the use, but it, it's a hot topic right now. Everybody potentially thinks of the negative things that are occurring, and, and I keep my mantra always is it's always the, the recreational user, not always, most of the times it's a recreational user that causes the problems, and then, and then the commercial user is going to be held to a higher standard, and the recreational user still can go doing whatever he or she wants to do, and they're basically unregulated. So what do you think is going to happen to Amazon's project where they wanted to, to make a delivery by a drone? You know, I, I, you just start thinking about that, and you just think logistically, I mean, just how, how are they ever going to, you know, implement something like that? Um, and, and just by the proposed regulations with the FAA, it won't, it won't fly. Again, no pun intended, simply because you <laughs> have to have that, that UAS has to be in visual line of sight. So if if the guy's going to come to your street and have to watch the thing deliver in your front yard, why doesn't he just walk up and put the box exactly. on the steps? So, exactly. you know, again, maybe, you know, Amazon's thinking, I, I think what the FAA's thinking today, 2015, where Amazon is thinking, we see how much the technology has advanced in the last couple years, not to mention 10 years. Where is it going to be in 15 or 20 years? And they're trying to get way ahead of the curve when the FAA is just trying to keep up with what's going on Literally, the FAA is trying to keep up with what's going on 10 years ago, not even thinking about what's happening in 15 years from now. So I think you've got the competing, the competition there is one company's thinking way in advance in the future commercial use, and then you have the government saying, we just need to regulate what's happening today. Try to get a, uh, our arms around what's going on today, not even think about what's going to happen in 10 years or 15 years from now. You know, and it's it, really it, true. The, the drone it's... I fly out of the box that you could go buy today. The fifteen hundred dollar investment you 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 could get today out of the box, if you turn back the clock ten or fifteen years, that was science fiction almost. Oh, absolutely. You know, who, who could ever who could ever think about what I can do right out of a box with a camera today, ten or twelve years ago? So you know, five, where are we going to be ten or fifteen years from now? Five years ago, we weren't talking about drones. No, and or if you were, it was only military applications. Right. That was exactly. that was the military application, and 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 that's a whole other whole other issue. That's a whole other topic. But that's what most people have thought about drones. Not a personal use drone, or or something so small, you know, smaller than a, a loaf of bread, that somebody could could potentially the distance on on these units. I mean, it's it's out of the box. You're talking over a mile potentially. Yeah, that's amazing. I could fly this thing a mile and 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 still see the telemetry. Can't do it legally because you have to keep it within line of sight. But yeah. right out of the box, the the distance is like 1.2 miles on most of these units. You know, Jim, we are at the end of the show. Can you believe it? I knew I knew this would happen. There's so much to talk about. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You're a great guest. Um, thank you for thank having you. me. Absolutely. And thank you to our loyal sponsors, PI Magazine and IRB Search. Tune in again, folks, next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Jim Nanos. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.